smoking on gas, got me slung, chasing Z's, chasing Z's, I've been high up off my ass, magic beans, magic beans, lying solo, Mr. Dolo, what you mean, what you mean, grab control and made your time, do you read, do you read, smoking on gas, got me slung, chasing Z's, chasing Z's, I've been high up off my ass, magic beans, magic beans, lying solo, Mr. Dolo, what you mean, what you mean, Level up, now I'm building myself Every day, never taking breaks, killing myself Addicted to the gold, only focused on wealth Still slide to my 95 Just to buy the time, till I'm on the rise Blasting off, I'm not asking off This ain't frat rap, tell the haters fuck off I'm shining, so blinding That's a vibe on God, no diamonds Broke boy, got nothing in my wallet Spend all my green on the green quite often Still flawless, stand tall and Say fuck it to me, face calling Time to ride the wave, override the shade Inhale the haze, have a lovely day Hey, bizarros. Oh my god, it's been a minute, hasn't it? I had to like come into here. There's like 16 outfits covering my chair. How many have that chair in the bedroom with like 16 worn once outfits on it? You're like, no, I'm gonna wear that again. I'm gonna put it up here. I mean, maybe this is a guy thing, and in particular, a guy bachelor thing. It's kind of like you pick up the t shirt and like, oh no. That's still fresh. I got another day in that. I'll just put it here on the chair. I found shirts I forgot I owned down at the... It's like an archaeological excavation getting down to that. Oh my God, what is this? Cup of Christ, you know, 17 layers down and once used clothes and everything. No, not underwear, but like shirts and shorts and pants. And I think I found a sock, just that random sock. And speaking of clothes, you know you're getting old when it used to be back in the days like, oh, man, that's Polo. That's hot. I'm going to get that. Yo, that's Tommy Hilfiger. Yo, I'm going to get that. Or, yeah, I like that. That's really in style. Now I'm just like, is it is it moisture wicking? Does it have an expandable waistband? <laughs> so you know you're getting old, you know. So I, I, I got these new water moisture wicking pants because I do a lot of hiking and... uh and I got moisture wicking underwear. So now there's like this battle going on in my pants between the, the, the moisture wicking underwear. You know, it's like, oh, there's sweat. Let's whisk that out of there. And it goes up to the surface and it's collected by the shorts. And the shorts are like, well, we're wicking too. We'll put that out. And I, there's like this battle of wicking going on in my pants. But, but I digress. So back to the chair. Now I have to get over to my desk and the computer and the mic system and everything. And everything looks like Howard Carter should be peering in from the door going, I see wonderful things. I know it was really, I, shit got away from me, man. How's everyone else doing out there? I, it, it surpassed the COVID thing here, 2020. It's going like the extra mile, you know, into like, yeah. You know, personal life and work and just weird shit now we're up to like two hurricanes at once because you know one hurricane that's so pre-2020 give us two is that all you got give us two and a pandemic and that chucklehead you know in the in the white house oh my god what a mess so yeah a bunch of personal life stuff going on i it's hard to get guests Guests are backing out at the last minute or canceling, and it's weird times for everybody, so I don't fault any of them, but it does make it hard to run a show, and man, I'm getting tired of like the, the jokey shows, I mean, how many penis articles can you read, and it's fine to have one silly, moronic article, especially if it does nothing but make Rojan really sad he's on my show, <laughs> you know, but it can't be the whole 
show anymore. I want to I want to talk about serious stuff, and I want to start taking on some of the big topics that when I first came in, I'm like, ah, I don't want to sound like every other show, but every other show sounds like every other show because they're really cool topics. And don't know if I'll be able to find guests for them all, but at least we can talk about them and the theories that are out there and try and get some of your opinions on stuff. And so we'll see where it goes. But otherwise, back to just kind of information and talking about it and talking about weird shit. And we can still laugh and have a good time, but make it less stupid, man. <laughs> but it was fun. I just want to do a little bit more serious things. But enough of all that chitter-chatter. And uh, let's get into the show because it's, it's been too long and my desk is clean. The desk here in my bedroom. I'm 49 years old and I do a podcast from my bedroom. It's like the 2020 equivalent of living in your mom's basement. But anyway, you love me anyway, right? Because someone's got to. So, all right, let's get into this and have a good time. I'll see you on the other side. Breaking news! All right, all right, enough of that. Hey, everybody, all right, let's uh, let's get into some weird shit, right? That's what we're all here for, right? Weird shit, because I got, I got a long one here for you. Oh, that sounds filthy, doesn't it? And quite the lie. But uh, this one is actually from Living Magazine. It's home renovation leads to a chilling discovery and an FBI investigation. All right, so... Uh, you bought your first new house, you know, and it, it's kind of a fixer-upper, and you're at that early marriage stage when you, know, you both haven't given up yet, and you're like, oh, we can refurbish a house together, and it'll be ours. Well, that's where this couple was. So, it, tackling home renovations, and this is by Gertarosh, and if there is anyone that I would want to hear from, it's a person named Gertarosh. I assume he's a Kardashian. Not a Kardashian, you heathens. Tackling home renovations is never easy, especially when you're dealing with a building that was built way back in the 1940s. Everything is aging, and the structure is often unstable, which can result in a long, arduous process that can also be complicated and expensive. However, one couple from Ohio got a lot more than they bargained for when they started the demolition of their basement. What started off as multiple, as multiple exciting, multiple exciting, as multiply exciting and extremely lucky, discoveries turned increasingly strange and in the end they unearthed something sinister that would shock them and the fbi it's not every day you find that the basement in your house is full of secrets and it's even more unusual that those secrets are dark and lead to a full-blown investigation by the fbi but what could they have unearthed that would be that bad don't miss this incredible story. So I, why would they put that? You're obviously here reading their story. Don't miss it. Don't stop reading. No. So a DIY renovation project. When a married couple from Ohio bought a house in Cleveland that required renovations, they were excited at the prospect. The 35-year-old husband was very into DIY and felt confident that he could get the property in the tip-top condition and without too much of a problem. It was a big job, and he was capable. They weren't in a hurry, so he had plenty of time to complete the project. And this is a really nice, big, brick Victorian house. So the, the suburban house, it, it's fairly large, two main floors, a large basement underneath, so the couple knew the entire renovation process would be pretty long. It could take years, in fact, so they had to be smart about how they approached it. They decided, therefore, to start with the top two floors and leave the basement for last. Seems right. It took quite a while to complete the renovations on the first and second floors, but eventually the couple got there and they were delighted with the outcome. It was exactly what they had envisioned when they first bought the property and they both felt like they were living the dream. The husband had, to document, uh, had been documenting this process the entire time and the transformation was stark. The renovation process had so far gone without a hitch. Sure, they've had a few setbacks along the way, but nothing that they couldn't easily cope with, and nothing that was out of the ordinary. It seemed like nothing more than a regular run-of-the-mill home renovation project, and one that was going extremely successfully, no less. The couple had no idea what was waiting around the corner in their basement. 
So after completing the renovations on the first and second floors of their home, the couple turned their attention to the basement and prepared themselves for the hard work they'd undoubtedly have to put into it to be transformed into the cozy space that they were visualizing. First, they decided to scoop out the available room and see what they would be dealing with. And that's scope out, not scoop out. I don't think they scooped out the room, but they did scope out the room. There was some graffiti on the walls of the basement, but it was faint and illegible, and the couple thought very little of it, assuming it had been a child drawn to the walls years ago. The husband was still taking pictures of everything to document his renovation project, and the graffiti was his first snap of the basement. There was nothing to suggest that anything was shocking or sinister waiting for the couple in the basement. In the basement. Can we say in the basement one more time? So the husband, the husband in the basement, was unassuming as he started his work. However, as he began to tear down the age drop ceiling, he was soon faced with a startling discovery that would prove to be start of a crazy chain of events. As huge chunks of ceiling crashed down around him, I, I, that's a little dramatic, the DIY husband noticed something out of the corner of his eye that he wasn't expecting. Squeezed between the rafters and propped against a pipe was a vintage-looking green and gray lunchbox. And if you're an old fart like me, you remember those old metal lunchboxes. It was just one of those, gray in the middle and uh, green on each side. With his wife now safely home, where was she? The man carried the suitcase into the back garden. And they keep calling it a suitcase. It is a lunchbox where the real reveal would happen. Beforehand, however, the couple had a little fun and prolonged the suspense and anticipation by taking turns to guess what could be inside the weathered, unearthed lunchbox. It was clearly old, so the husband predicted that it could be an old collection of sports cards. The wife, on the other hand, thought that it was a chance it could be an old handwritten recipe. If they were lucky, priceless antiques. Their speculation grew wilder and more adventurous until they both decided that enough was enough. It was time to open the suitcase launch box and reveal its contents. Whatever they may be, little did they know what was in store for them. Neither do we. Can we be told? That'd be great. Barely able to contain their excitement and anticipation, the couple opened the small suitcase launch box from their first glimpse. However, they weren't able to gauge exactly what the contents were. They certainly didn't have any idea that good fortune they were about to discover. Instead, they just saw bundles of aging wax paper, which was disappointing. But then they noticed something. On closer inspection, it was clear that the yellowed wax paper was wrapped around rectangular objects of some kind. What could it be? The couple would then have to investigate further to find out exactly what was inside the mysterious suitcase lunchbox. The husband took out the object sitting at the top of the suitcase and tentatively unwrapped it. As he peeled back the wax paper, he saw there were multiple layers, removing them one by one. It soon became apparent that he was holding in his hand a fairly large bundle of old money, a stack of $20 bills to be exact. The couple couldn't believe their luck. They predicted that they must have about $2,000 in total, and that was just one bundle, and there were three in the suitcase total. They were both over the moon. Home renovations don't ever come cheap, and after all, they were overjoyed that they found some money they could possibly cover some of the costs. This briefcase wasn't filled with $20 bills, though. It was filled with 50s and 100s. This, rev this revelation opened up a can of worms. The couple had so many questions. Who did the money originally belong to? Where did it come from? How was it earned? Who wrapped it up? Who put it in the suitcase? Honestly, who cares? I'd just be like, money! And who hid it in the ceiling in the basement? And most importantly, why? Don't care. Unfortunately, the couple had absolutely no idea. Don't care. What they were able to ascertain was that the bills were old. Don't they watch horror movies? Just take the money and be quiet. Don't look into it. You're going to end up somewhere terrible. They had dates ranging from 1928 to 1934. Other than that, however, it was all a mystery. The couple wondered whether the old 20s, 50s, and 100s would in fact turn out to be worth more than their face value considering how old they were. Next, they turned their attention to the suitcase itself lunchbox in case it could provide some clues as to who and where the money came from. Maybe there would be a name somewhere on it and the husband had already predicted it was from around the 1950s. Judging by its shape and style, I had one in the 80s, but continue, 
Unfortunately, there was nothing else that was of much help. Taking everything, including all the wax paper, out of the suitcase, lunchbox, he saw something at the very bottom of the suitcase that neither he nor his wife had noticed before. It was an old newspaper, a copy of the Cleveland Plain Dealer, a paper from the couple's hometown, and the date, 25th of March, 1951. It was more than 65 years old. Judging by the date on the newspaper, as well as the dates on all the bills, it was a fair assumption that the fortune had been stashed away in the Cleveland home for a long time. Wow, did they put that together themselves? The couple decided to get the bills checked out by an expert, just in case they were both worth more than the face value. In another stroke of luck, they were. They were all more than 70 years old, and some even were even star bills that hadn't even been circulated. The couple was dumbstruck. How on earth did they end up here? Just to be unearthed all these years later, all in all, the money in the suitcase, lunchbox, was worth an impressive $23,000. Now, of course, the couple was thrilled. This was a wild ride for us, and I hope you all enjoyed it too, the husband wrote on Reddit, because of course you go to Reddit. We are boring people and have been, dumped our, been dumping our extra money to pay off our mortgage, and that's where this money will go to. Little did he know, however, that this was just the beginning of their home's greater mystery. They enjoyed their moment in the spotlight for a while. However, as there was great interest from their local community that spread further afield. Soon, local newspapers were covering their $23,000 story, then national newspapers, then even news channels. They were the talk of the town, and people wondered whether their homes hid any more secret cash. After a short while, however, the couple figured that life has to go on. So once the excitement of their discovery had died down, it was time for them to carry on with the renovations in the basement. Little did they know that resuming work would lead to even more surprises that had been hidden away, just like the green and gray suitcase lunchbox. As the couple pressed on with their home renovations in the basement, they would uncover more than they ever could have dreamed of. Little did they know there were surprises and treasures to discovery, to discover, as well as secrets and horrors that would shock them to the core. From the moment the husband found the old suitcase lunchbox in the ceiling, their lives were changed forever. It wasn't long before the husband hit the jackpot. Another suitcase. I don't know. Maybe it's a lunchbox. I don't know. I don't think they show the second one. You can look in the show notes and look this up and see the pictures, but the first one's a lunchbox. Another suitcase hidden away within the ceiling. Again, it was revealed as he pulled more sections down, and he couldn't believe his luck. Could this really be a second suitcase jam-packed full of cash? Could they really be that lucky? In fact, could anyone be that lucky? Uh, yeah, in fact, it's the exact lunchbox. Goddamn lunchbox. He managed to prize it. To prize it. He prize it out of his secure hiding spot and gave it a once-over to see if it had any immediate clues. Was he making a check for traps roll? I don't know. Had any immediate clues as to where it came from and whose it was? There was nothing. However, just like the first, he wiped off all the dust and dirt from the top to look at it closer. But there was no name or engraving anywhere to be seen on the lunchbox. This time, there was no internal debate as whether he would wait for his wife to get home before opening the suitcase lunchbox. There was just no way he could do it without her. No way he could do it without her. Considering the fortune they discovered last time, it was simply too exciting to miss out on. While he waited, he got out the first suitcase lunchbox and snapped some photographs of the two together. It's a picture of two lunchboxes. The two lunchboxes were almost identical. There was just a slight difference with the type of fastening used. Oh, I see that. Could it be, therefore, that the contents were identical too? Of course, he hoped so. Another 23000 certainly wouldn't go amiss. A few hours later, as soon as the wife got home, the couple settled down for the big reveal. They weren't about to waste any time finding out what was inside the suitcase, except for what, the nine hours he waited for her to get home? Opening it, they saw immediately that it was different. There were no wax paper. There, they weren't disappointed, though, because what they saw blew them away. Instead of bundles of money wrapped in wax paper, the suitcase contained money lined up in an orderly fashion organized into different groups. It was difficult to predict exactly how much was there, but it was clear that it was a lot. Again, the couple had no idea where it came from or who put it there. Good, just take the money. 
they'd never been so many there's never been so many notes in one bundle in their lives and they were blown away on closer inspection they could see that the notes had been grouped together according to their denomination and there were all kinds in there from $20 bills all the way up to hundreds and they couldn't wait to find out how much it was worth again they enlisted the help of an expert to ascertain the second treasure's worth however this time they kept the news to themselves they had after all attracted a lot of attention when they found the first box and they didn't want the same kind of national coverage over again plus this was getting serious now much of their surprise and delight the windfall that was contained in the second suitcase surpassed the first but the second fortune amounted to an impressive $45,000, taking their grand total to an incredible $68,000. They were both amazed, and it's fair to say taken aback by the humble, but were humble with their newfound fortune. Eh, it's not going to go that far. Instead of splashing out of fancy cars and luxury items on $68,000, exotic holidays, $68,000, the couple put the money away safely to go toward the home renovations that they had been planning for so long. However, safe to say that now the couple knew that the house they lived in was hiding some secret and a treasure, and were motivated more than ever to look for it. They speculated for a while as to what the house had been previously used for, or used by. Maybe an old rich couple owned it who didn't want to keep their life savings in a bank. Maybe the money was acquired as part of a crime, possibly to do drugs or illegal arms. I, yeah, one of the two, yeah, I would think it's probably drugs or illegal gun sales, absolutely. For fuck's sake. The possibilities were endless, and the couple had fun guessing while they continued their renovations. That brings us to a mysterious door. It always comes down to that, doesn't it? A mysterious door. One thing that caught their attention in particular was a door in the basement. It didn't look like anything exciting, and it wasn't even a full-length door. It could have been a cupboard, but they purchased the house. And when you look at the picture, it kind of looks like the you know a dumbwaiter, if you've ever seen one of those. Uh, the realtor had originally told him that the, only the hot water tank was behind it. As a result, they never thought of anything, and they never had a need to look behind it. Really? You buy an old-ass, bucked-up house that you got to renovate, and you didn't even check out the hot water heater? Genius. Now, however, considering their recent discoveries, they both wanted to open the door and see what was behind it with their own eyes. Of course they were curious. If they found $68,000 worth of cash in a suitbox lunchbox... So, um, it's a suit box. That's what it is. Stuffed into a ceiling. Think of what could have been hiding behind the whole door. It was heavily locked, though, so it had to be opened by force to hide the water heater. The husband set about breaking through the locks, which was no easy feat. As soon as they managed to get the door open, they realized that either they'd been deceived when they bought the house or their realtor had been hugely mistaken. This was no ordinary door, and there certainly was no hot water tank behind it. What was clear was that someone had gone to great lengths to hide this room, and this seemed a little creepy to the couple. A suitcase, lunchbox, full of money is one thing, but a strange hidden room in the basement behind a door that looked like a cupboard is quite another. So, went so much out of their way to hide the room. Who went so far out of their way? And what was the reason behind it? They also couldn't quite believe that after years of living in the house, they'd never have a clue of the room's existence. They'd assumed this entire time that it was some kind of utility room with nothing more than a hot water tank hidden behind it. It was unnerving, especially as the door had been fastened with heavy locks. Why such high levels of security? And when you, you, you look in there, there's pictures on here. Again, it'll be in the show notes. This is all kind of a padded floor kind of cell-looking place. I don't know, but there's like carpet padding all over the floor and stuff like that. So kind of weird. You'll have to check it out. It was all a mystery, but they both knew they had to at least try to get to the bottom of it. There was a secret that this house was hiding, and it seemed as though it could possibly be a dark one. Finding the suitcases and the treasures within them had been fun, exciting, and exhilarating. Lunchboxes. But it was now turned into something completely different. Instead, the couple felt nervous and slightly apprehensive. Something just didn't feel right, although neither could quite put their finger on it. How had the mood suddenly changed so much? Could this be something sinister? Blah, 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 get on with it. They entered the room cautiously and took a closer look around. What they saw only unnerved them more. All the walls were covered with white plastic tarp, as well as another material, which they both recognized as soundproofing. 
What had been down there was making noise that someone didn't want heard. Mm, sure. Surely whatever the answer to that question, it, it couldn't be good. Plot lines from horror movies and crime documentaries started crossing their mind, and their uneasiness began to grow. Was this room linked to money? If so, how exactly? The first item they found in the room was an old, worn, brown leather briefcase. Considering the treasures they found in the suitcase lunchbox in the ceiling, the couple was hopeful that they were about to stumble upon more treasure. However, given their surroundings, they were dubious, and understandably so. So instead of riches, it could contain something disturbing, and they were feeling the pressure. Opening it, they felt a sense of relief when they saw the contents of the briefcase. It was full of antique jewelry, silver ingots, watches, rings. They all looked valuable, and as they had been someone's most prized possessions, there were also multiple envelopes stuffed full of cash from countries all over the world, as well as a wooden box that also looked antique. Of course, this posed more questions that pro then provided answers. Why on earth had someone put all these valuable items in a briefcase and then left it all in a hidden soundproof room that was attached to a basement? However, feeling as though there was more to discover, the couple didn't ponder long. Instead, they continued to search the room. Soon enough, the couple, and now it's even going to get weirder, the couple discovered that the old leather briefcase wasn't the only valuable item hidden in the secret room. Tucked away in one of the dark corners was a black safe that was almost hidden from view. They approached it, and again, a sense of foreboding watched over the couple as they began to open it. They obviously had no idea what the combination to the lock would be, so they knew that they would have to use force to break into the safe. The husband forced his way in, breaking the lock completely in the process. The safe was full, but the couple only noticed one thing immediately, something that stood out straight away. Unfortunately, it was not an item of value or any kind of treasure. It was, in fact, a note that made both of their stomachs knot. On white-lined paper, in dripping, thick black ink, were the words, Save Yourself. Both the husband and the wife felt a chill run down their spine. Was this note a warning to them, or this had been a warning to someone that was in this room previously? It crossed their minds that this could be some sort of joke or prank, but something in their gut told them that this was more sinister than that. Something just wasn't right, and this note seemed to confirm that. The couple began to realize that there might be something seriously wrong and began to wonder what they should do next. The obvious next step would be to look at the rest of the contents of the safe. <laughs> yeah. After all, they needed to know what they were dealing with, and before they took any, looked any further, how bad could it really be? Little did they know they were only just scratching the surface and were about to make discoveries that would lead them to call the authorities. Suddenly, the couple noticed some words scrawled in white paint on the underside of the safe's lid. Do not. Do not what? Again, was this meant for them or someone who had been in the room previously? Either way, it was unnerving. Then the couple saw what they what had been lying underneath the save yourself note multiple videotapes <laughs> this completely dumbfounded them both what on earth could be on these tapes and they look little they look like um uh those high eights you know those little small videotapes that would go into camcorders <laughs> it looks like those so, uh, what on earth could be on the tapes that required them to be locked in a safe in the corner of a hidden room in a basement in Cleveland, Ohio? It just didn't make sense. As it was becoming clear that something untoward or possibly worse had occurred in this strange secret room. The husband removed the tapes and began to inspect them for any clues they might hold regarding what was on them and who put them there. Unfortunately, they revealed very little. They did, however, seem to be newer than the contents of the suitcases, lunchboxes, in the basement and the briefcase in the mysterious room, which seemed a little strange. There were six videotapes in total, and five of them were labeled with an indecipherable series of numbers and letters. 194, 1195, 1195, IV, 95, V. The couple wondered whether this could have been referring to dates. But of course, they, would only, they could only speculate. The whole experience had gotten a little much for them now. The couple decided not to watch the videotapes, but they were nervous about what they'd see and discover in the strange secret room had unnerved them. 
They were both beginning to wish they'd never stumbled across the secret hidden room and its mysterious contents and tried to put the videotapes out of their mind. Over the next few days, both the husband and the wife began to dwell on the videotapes and wonder what was on them. They tried to be optimistic, even hoped that it was a kind of practical joke, something left by the previous owner to fool the next person that stumbled across the hidden room. They realized, however, that it was extremely unlikely. No one in their right mind would go to this much trouble for a silly prank played on someone you didn't even know. Plus, it very much looked like whoever put these tapes there was trying to keep them safely hidden forever. Curiosity was mounting by the day and could only be put off for so long. After several sleepless nights, the couple couldn't wait any longer. They simply had to see what was on the videotapes with their own eyes. No matter what they were, and after all, they both thought, what were the odds that there was going to be anything other than old home movies or a practical joke? <sighs> with that in mind, they retrieved the videotapes and popped the first one into an old VCR, which I makes them like their VHS tapes. I, I don't know. Uh, you'll see. Pressing play, the couple sat back to watch the content. Nothing. However, could have prepared them for what they saw. Immediately, it was clear the seemingly normal house in Cleveland, Ohio, was keeping many dark secrets, and now the couple knew what they were. The contents of the videotape were horrifying, and the couple couldn't believe what they were seeing. It was enough for them to wish immediately they had never found the room and its strange contents. But of course, it was too late to think like that now. They quickly checked the videotape, and it was much of the, the other videotapes, and they were much of the same. The couple knew that it was way out of their hands now, and they both wished this crazy experience had just finished there. And then. The couple contacted the local state police, which in turn decided that this was a matter for the FBI. They knew it was serious, and agents were sent to the house immediately to check out the items that the couple found. Of course, they confiscated the videotapes right away and took them back to the station for investigation. They also inspected the hidden room at length and took statements from the couple regarding how they stumbled across it. They also took the safe, the jewelry, watches, and the cryptic note. But luckily for the couple, a lot of the original cash that was found had already been spent on their mortgage and renovations. Unfortunately for us, we may never know what was on those videotapes. After the police took them, the husband posted the entire story along with the picture he pictures he had taken for documentation purposes. Where the thread went wild was on Reddit. People couldn't get enough of the story and wanted to know the contents of the tapes. The police, however, instructed the husband to remove the story and not reveal what was on the videotapes as they were part of an ongoing investigation. And from what we can tell, the mystery hasn't been solved yet and there's been no updates to the story. Staying true to his word to the police, the husband has not posted any further details. Although the original step-by-step -step account of the Crazy Ohio experience is no longer available to view as a threat on Reddit, we were able to find a comment from the husband at a later date regarding the investigation with the police. He wrote, The reasons why I took down everything was at request of the sheriff. It's a lot of stuff relevant to the ongoing case now, and they politely asked me to do it, so I figured it would be wise to do so. If further news does happen, and if it's figured out, I do have permission to scan the reports and show them online after the case is closed. Fingers crossed he posts them when the case is closed. So, just for a matter of speculation, um, as, as what really went on in that house all those years ago, and it's quite possible that we'll never know, but what we can safely say is it must have been horrifying to the couple to contact the authorities immediately, and for then for the FBI to launch into an official investigation straight away. After all, it had been a practical joke, as a couple had first suspected, they would have simply discarded the tapes, kept the cash and antique items they found for themselves. Instead, their actions confirmed the house was previously used for something terrible. I guess all we can do is wait and see if the FBI ever finds out and the truth behind the money and the secret soundproof room. Twelve years have already passed since the suitcases, lunchboxes, were discovered, so hopefully it won't take much longer. However, there is a plethora of questions that uh, all of us compose. Firstly, who even owned the house when all this was going on? Who put the money in the suitcase and hid them in the ceiling in the basement? How did they acquire the money in the first place? And if there were some dark crimes recorded on the videotapes, were they related to the money in the basement? It's just such a span of decades going on there. 
It's chilling to think about the hidden room off the basement and who would build such a thing and why. Were people kept as prisoners down there and told to save yourself? Or were people down there... Is this the antique jewelry watches and foreign currency came from, from the people that were tortured? I don't know. We may never know, but it really makes you wonder what went on in that home or your own home before you lived there. Yeah, so who knows? I mean, my imagination can kind of run wild with terrible things that went on in that secret room. What do you think? Let me know. We'll talk about it. You know, drop me a line. You know, if you want to contact the show, that's something you can do, even if you're not on Facebook or part of the Facebook group, which, if you're on Facebook, you should head over there and find the Facebook group for Bizarro Aficionado. And uh, if not, you can uh, contact us at bizarroaficionado at gmail.com and uh, tell me what you think was in the room. Do you have inside information or just a guess? Let us know. All right, so up next, Uh, this is the puzzling tale of Alfred Packer, the Colorado cannibal. And this is uh, from Ripley's. And they say that fact is stranger than fiction. And when this actually proves to be the case, the story never disappoints. Cannibalism is arguably one of the most intriguing topics when it comes to the facts outweighing the fiction. From rituals throughout history to true horror stories, cannibalism has remained a taboo topic. But aside from the gruesome nature of this act, only two Americans have ever been considered to have legitimately been jailed for cannibalism. Albert Fish and Alfred Packer. So who was Alfred Packer? All right, so born in January in 1842 in Allegheny County, Pennsylvania, to all my PA friends, Alfred Packer lived an unspectacular life until about the 1960s, during which time he joined and fought for the Union in the Civil War. Honorably discharged on two separate occasions after seizures caused by his epilepsy, he struggled to make a living at a variety of jobs. Before turning to the gold rush for an attempt to make a quick fortune in Colorado, But this was no easy street. A tragedy during his short-lived career as a prospector would go on to dub him one of the most controversial characters in Colorado history. In 1863, during a harsh winter, he and five companions, Israel Swan, Shannon Bell, George Noon, Frank Miller, and James Humphrey, set out to the San Juan Mountains to search for California gold. As conditions became worse and the length of their journey stretched on, the men slowly began to starve after running out of supplies. Having eaten everything down to the leather of their shoes, there was only one desperate source of sustenance left. In what he called an act of self-defense, Packer killed one of his companions, Shannon Bell. Packer claims that the group of men became so hungry after the brutal storm that Bell desperately came after him with a hatchet. To avoid being killed himself, he had no choice but to turn on Bell. Packer claimed that the rest of the group was already dead, with some of their flesh missing when he found them after the fight. Some accounts even suggest that Bell himself had been cooking the remains of their companions when Packer came across him, finishing the job that Bell supposedly started. Packer claimed he was forced to eat the meat off the other men rather than starve to death. Later investigations into the matter have been inconclusive as to which of the two men actually killed the others. A bullet hole found in the skeleton believed to be Bell didn't appear to match with Packer's story of how he shot his supposed attacker. But one thing's for certain, Packer partially ate their flesh as he later confessed during his trial. After emerging from the mountains, Packer gave his account of the terrible events and was arrested. Without even a shred of proof that he hadn't killed his companions, he was convicted and imprisoned in the town of, oh, Sagauch? S-A-G-U-A-C-H-E, Sagachi, Sagauch? His chilling tale isn't even over yet, as he soon escaped his Colorado cell. Almost a decade after his breakout, Packer was finally located in Wyoming using the alias John Schwartz. After a retrial in Lake City in June 1886, he was sentenced to 40 years in Cannon City Jail after a death sentence was reverted by Colorado's Supreme Court, being paroled in 1901. He then moved to Jefferson County, where he died six years later at the age of 65. Ironically enough, the story goes that he became a vegetarian before his death. Irony. 
Though he died over a century ago, Packer's puzzling story continues. He himself confirmed that he ate some of his companion's remains, but insisted until the end of his life that he hadn't killed them, except in the case of Bell. Was the Colorado cannibal also the Colorado killer? We still don't know. Packer was awarded parole largely thanks to the Denver Post editor, Polly Pry. Her sympathetic stories turned public opinion in his favor by presenting him as a survivor of a harrowing ordeal in which he had been forced to consume the flesh of his unfortunate companions to survive. Ultimately, we may never know if he was a vicious killer or a strong-willed survivor, but the dramatically different retellings of the incident certainly add to its fascinating appeal. Considering his status as a local legend, it's no surprise that tributes to him are rife. The University of Colorado boasts a cafeteria grill dubbed the Alfred G. Packer Memorial Grill. What's more, South Park's Trey Parker, who attended the university, created Cannibal the Musical as a student. This retelling of his life and several others takes all kinds of poetic license with the subject matter. But one thing's for sure, the story of Packer's life is an incredible and wild journey. So, uh, yeah, I... Another one that's in the show notes, there's uh, some drawings, I guess, of what the uh, scene looked like. I guess when people finally got back there, pretty grisly. Uh, again, it's a drawing, not a picture, because it's like 1873. But, uh, and he, and he kind of looks like John Wilkes Booth. Uh, that's C.C. Mitch Hell. I, I don't know who Mitch Hell is, but anyway, you can check that in the, uh, in the show notes. That's the puzzling tale of Alfred Packer. And, uh, mm, meat. So next, we've got Dutch profanity. So, I mean, who doesn't want to talk about Dutch profanity? Get the Corona is starting to make an appearance. Twana Hines, who grew up in rural Illinois, moved to the Netherlands to pursue a graduate degree at the University of Amsterdam in 2000. Not totally used to the stream of bicycles and trams in the streets of Amsterdam, she wandered into a bike lane and got a mouthful from a passing cyclist. And my Dutch roommate shouted back in the Dutch translation, Get cancer, man. She remembers, and I was like, what the hell? That doesn't make any sense. Why would you tell someone to get cancer? This was not some bizarrely creative insult that her roommate came up with. The Netherlands, in fact, is home to a shockingly extensive list of swear words, and the ones you might use to yell at an errant pedestrian are largely medical in nature. You can tell someone you think they're suffering from cholera, smallpox, or tuberculosis. You can tell them the typhoid off. It's a truly strange quirk of the Dutch language, one that can be off-putting or offensive to those not used to it, and even some who are, especially today. Even Get the Corona is now already in use and circulating around the Netherlands. Uh, Ewood Sanders, a journalist and author who writes about the language for uh, NRC Handerslad, one of the most important Dutch newspapers, and of which whose name I most likely butchered. In general, cultures tend to form their profanity around concepts that they fear. In Puritanical America and Japan, sexual terms are common. In Quebec, long ruled by the Catholic Church, it's religious terminology. In the Netherlands, it's illnesses, at least for some cases. The Dutch people I spoke with drew line between different types of swearing. One kind is the general angry exclamation, what you might yell if you stub your toe. Those are often actually English words, like ones that refer to excrement or intercourse. The other type is the more interesting one, ones that you say in anger to another person or an object or situation that has enraged you in some way, and those are absolutely dominated by medical terminology. The basic form of this type of swearing is to tell someone to get cancer, with variations for a range of ailments and infections. From this foundation, one can build spectacular and often totally meaningless phrases. One method also used in, in Quebecois, Goddamn French. It's in French. Just list all the bad words you can think of one after another. So you could say, get cancer, typhoid, smallpox. And that is both more creative and more aggressive than the simple get cancer. So you can also add other modifiers to these diseases to strengthen them. In Rotterdam, says Sanders, you might say, get the cancer that goes all the way over the Moss River, which indicates a very large tumor indeed. The regional variation would be incomprehensible to someone from, say, Amsterdam, where you would spice things up with animals, get the pig cholera, 
you could scream at someone who bumped into you and knocked your stoop waffle to the ground. I hate it when I lose my, lose my stoop rock. Stroop waffle? If you ask 10 Dutch people, they would all have their own palette of words they use, like Dick Smackman. I <laughs> from a linguist from Leiden University, Dick Smackman. I, <laughs> I just can't. Uh, what more needs to be said when your name is Dick Smackman? I'm changing my name to Dick Smackman. There is a limit to exactly which illnesses uh, make any sense as profanity, though it's fluid. It's a fluid repertoire. If you pick an illness that has never been used in the Netherlands in any of this, these ways, you might get some quizzical looks. In general, mild illnesses, non-fatal annoyances, these don't really show up in the dictionary of Dutch swears. The most profane illnesses are largely major plague-type conditions, ones that have swept through the Netherlands and most other places and wipe out huge segments of the population. Many are now sort of archaic, perhaps having been eradicated in the country itself. The newer and more newly known ones are still a share and share a certain mass death element. AIDS, cancer, coronavirus, other categories that show up as medicalized insults directed at one's mental abilities, some of which are today considered archaic or offensive. The Dutch people are very straightforward and very blunt. We have a reputation of this, and that's also in the cursing, says Saunders. But for those who aren't Dutch, some of this can seem wildly inappropriate. You're talking about a culture that celebrates Santa with slaves, says Heinz. So there's a certain level of what might seem like outright racism or homophobia or a lack of general graciousness to people who are not like you. The Netherlands is more than three quarters Dutch, and the Dutch are like people in most European countries grappling with how to speak to people who don't look or act like them, but who are now part of their nation. Sometimes in the Netherlands, this is, a, is portrayed by bluntness or honesty or a rejection of political correctness. Those are thin, short-lived arguments, and curses do fall out of use. Saunders said that some of them are restricted to kids, perhaps like the way American kids used the word gay until they grew up and realized that that sucks and they shouldn't ever do that. By far, the most common of the Dutch medical curses is cancer or canker which in the Netherlands, as in many places, is among the most common causes of death. In practice, it's a pretty mild swear word and a versatile one. You can refer to your canker shoes, canker shoes, which are worn out or uncomfortable. Kankeren, the verb, means to complain. You can attach it to basically any other swear word. Canker whore or canker whore is a popular one. You can also say you suffer from cancer coronavirus these days it doesn't make any sense whatsoever but it makes get the corona stronger you know says sanders so that's lovely isn't it most of the swears are fairly disconnected and used from actual diseases they reference uh get cholera you know things like that so it, it's it's hard to rank countries by germophobia or cleanliness there are plenty of accounts of the military cleanliness of dutch households one study suggested the Dutch uh, dominance in the European dairy industry and its demand for hygiene is connected with a Dutch love of cleanliness. On the other hand, the Dutch also show up in a survey indicating that they wash their hands after going to the bathroom less frequently than residents of other European countries, though that just might be classic Dutch honesty screwing, skewing the results. Even Dutch Americans, to honor their Dutch heritage, literally scrub streets before a tulip festival, though that seems to be like more of a guess based on stereotypes of cleanliness than something that's actually done in the Netherlands. But uh, so there you have it, Dutch cursing, because I know you were wondering. So let's, uh, let's take a brief break, and I'll get something to drink, and you can get something to drink or eat, and uh, we'll be right back. There have always been strange, dark rumors surrounding the decaying property. Rumors horror novelist Philip Loeb believes could serve as the perfect inspiration to restart his career. The more intertwined Loeb's life becomes with the decaying's, the more he realizes there is far more to the family than the rumors have led people to believe. The Family Decaying from the mind of Christopher Hall, a new horror classic is born. Available in Kindle and paperback at Amazon. Okay, where were we? That was better. I needed a little something to drink and uh, 
I think I said it before, I don't have any air conditioning. This is the last summer of that crap, because it is it gets warm in here. So uh talk for a little bit. I need something to drink. And it's actually not alcohol. It's just water. Just water. So where were we? What should we talk about? Uh torture. I mean, how do you follow up uh cannibals and uh Dutch swearing? Obviously, torture myths. So we're gonna talk about things people believe about historical torture that are just not true. And this is an article from Ranker's Weird History by Genevieve Carlton. And it's an older article, but I really liked it. So uh, we're going to listen anyway. Let me find it here. Miss, there we go. <clears throat> so the Iron Maiden, the Rack, the Pair of Anguish. Torture museums gleefully display these horrific devices, claiming they were used on thousands during the medieval era. But... It turns out most of our beliefs about historical torture simply aren't true. Nearly every article about gruesome torture devices includes some form of torture that never existed. Take the Iron Maiden, for example. It was invented in the 18th century to make the medieval era look more barbaric. Stories about bamboo torture pop up in literature, but there's no proof it ever took place, and the pair of anguish wasn't used to rip open orifices. In fact, it might have been a sock stretcher, in fact. As historian Helen May Carell explains, the common view of the medieval justice system, justice system as cruel and based around torture and execution is often unfair and inaccurate. So why are there so much misinformation about torture? Because... You know, we, we are tired of misinformation about torture. We want truth in our torture. First, because we're horrified and fascinated by it. There's a reason torture appeared in so many movies, books, and TV shows. And second, because stories about torture reinforce what we already believe about the past. We think of the medieval era as a brutal time, so it's easier to believe devices like the Iron Maiden were real. But when we hold the myths about torture up to historical scrutiny, many prove false. So let's start with the pair of anguish, which is, I don't know if you've heard of I have heard of it. And the myth is that sexual deviants were punished with the pair of anguish. So after being inserted into one of the victim's various orifices, the pair of anguish was screwed open until the skin was stretched beyond endurance. Torture museums love this one. The reality the first mention of the pair of anguish comes from the 19th century with no evidence that the device was used for torture. A recent examination of devices in torture museums shows it was too weak to open inside of a body orifice. On top of that, the latch device could never be opened while the pair was inside someone's body. As for the objects themselves, historian Chris Bishop says they were most likely sock stretchers or even glove wideners. Next myth. Criminals experienced a slow, piercing punishment in the Iron Maiden. Run to the hills! Uh, wrong Iron Maiden. The myth. Victims were forced into a dark chamber studded with spikes. Then the doors closed and the spikes pierced their bodies. You've seen this in movies, the internet, torture museums, wax places, you name it. The reality, the Iron Maiden was a phony invention from the 18th century. Writer Johann Philipp... Sibenkis claimed that centuries earlier, a Nuremberg criminal perished inside an Egyptian mummy case lined with spikes. By the 19th century, fake Iron Maidens were on display across Europe, particularly in torture museums. So a lot of this stuff ends up being gaff. Multiple sources repeated the false stories, turning the Iron Maiden into a legendary medieval torture device. <clears throat> Next, the Catholic Church brutally tortured witches. Ah, the myth. The Catholic Church brutally tortured women to force them to confess to witchcraft. And you've seen this across popular culture. The reality. Accused witches were indeed tortured across Europe, largely in the 16th and 17th century. However, the Catholic Church rarely tortured the accused witches. During 1609 to 1611, Basque witch hunt overseen by the Inquisition, only two suspects out of thousands were tortured, and both received a reduced sentence of banishment rather than execution. Secular authorities were much more likely to torture accused witches, especially to force victims to accuse others. This is what spurred the largest witch hunts. The Inquisition, by contrast, was comparatively less brutal to the accused. 
Next myth, medieval people punished criminals in the brazen bull. Now, this is one I have not heard of. The medieval Europeans stuffed people into metal bulls. Oh, maybe I have. Then lit fires underneath to roast them alive. Their anguished cries escaped the bull's hollow mouth. Well, that's macabre. Where have you seen it? Movies, stories about martyrdom of St. Eustace. The reality, the brazen bull was never used in medieval Europe. In fact, it may have never even existed at all. Reportedly created in the 6th century BCE by Sicilian tyrant Phalaris, no archaeologist has found physical evidence of a brazen bull. It is possibly this story was invented just to make Phalaris look like a cruel ruler. As for St. Eustace, reportedly martyred in a brazen bull, the Catholic Church says the stories are false. Next myth, the pillory caused excruciating pain. The pillory, also known as the stocks, locked up criminals in a contorted position and let them, left them vulnerable to assault. Where we've seen it? Movies, history. The pillory really did exist, and it was meant to shame criminals, not physically harm them. In medieval London, bakers also sold fake bread, were sentenced to the pillory for several hours where their fellow Londoners could sneer at them. But after their sentence, the bakers were released, suffering only from potentially sore muscles and humiliation. Female convicts sent to the pillory were often given a stool to sit on, again underscoring that the shame of public punishment was the point. Medieval people used the racks as their main form of torture. The medieval Europeans frequently tormented criminals with the rack, which slowly stretched their bodies. We've seen it in movies, the internet, uh, the pit and the pendulum. The rack really did exist, but it was invented in the ancient period, not by medieval Europeans. The device was probably uncommon in the medieval era. Historians have found just one reference to the existence of a rack during the Middle Ages, the Tower of London in 1447. If medieval England possessed just one rack, it likely wasn't the main form of torture during the area or during the era. Ancient Persians subjected their worst criminals to the boats. The myth was that ancient Persians laid victims between two boats with their head, hands, and feet left free. They were then fed milk and honey until their excretions drew insects to feast on their bodies. That seems a little drawn out. Um, this became popular from Plutarch's writings. So the reality is the tale of Persia's horrific torture method comes from Plutarch, who takes it from an earlier Greek historian, Cecilius of Snidus, according to Livius. Few ancient authors were as unreliable as Cetesius. Even Plutarch admitted that Cetesius's work contained extravagant and incredible tales. It is possible the Persians really did torment criminals with the boats, also known as scaphism, but it's just as likely as Cestius made the whole thing up. So that is some uh, weird crap about uh, torture, because I knew you guys wanted to know about torture. So let's see where we are. We're coming. I've got about 10 more minutes to stay within an hour here. Let's see. Do we want the scorpions in the CIA or a heat wave in 1911? It's scorpions in the CIA, I think. The winds of change. The scorpions in the CIA. Did the U.S. intelligence agency and not the German rock band Scorpions compose the power ballad Winds of Change to help topple the communist bloc? A podcast by New Yorker writer Patrick Raiden Keefe looks into it. So... I listened to this, so I'll kind of interject my little points into this along with the article, uh, which is from uh, DW. So we'll kind of take a look at this. But you guys know the song. Uh, the whistling. Y you barely have to hear it for it to give you goosebumps, especially when paired with documentary images that arch from the rise of the Berlin Wall in 61 to cheering East Germans as it comes down and dancing Soviet soldiers. The power ballad Wind of Change in the definitive soundtrack of the fall of the Eastern Communist bloc. It was written by the German hard rock band Scorpions in September 1989, just two months before the fall of the Berlin Wall. Thanks to its English lyrics, it captured the mood of the moment across the entire Eastern Bloc and people's hope for change. Take me to the magic of the moment of a glory night 
where the children of tomorrow dream their way in the wind of a change. Roughly 14 million copies of this single have been sold around the world to date. It has scored a spot on 78 national music charts, and a remastered version released in 2009 has been viewed on YouTube more than 765 million times. Scorpion frontman Klaus Mein said that the band's participation in the legendary Moscow Music Peace Festival on August 89 moved him to write the song. So he describes a moment of inspiration for German newspaper uh, Hamburger Abendblatt. Everyone was all together one evening. Germans, Russians, American musicians, journalists, and also members of the Soviet Red Army. All in one boat on the Moscow River going to Gorky Park. That was the vision. The whole world in one boat. Everyone speaking the same language. Music. But was that really how it happened? That's the simple question U.S. investigative journalist Patrick Radden Keefe asks in his podcast, Wind of Change, which looks into whether the Scorpions' power ballad, which might just be the most influential song of the 20th century, as Keefe describes it in his trailer for the series, was actually composed by U.S. intelligence agents to feed the budgeting anti-communist revolution in Soviet-controlled states. Could it be possible that the CIA could have collaborated with a German hairband to write a power ballad that ended the Cold War and somehow kept the whole thing secret ever since, he asked in the series trailer. Keith's starting point is a rumor that was shared with him by a friend who heard it in turn from their friend, a former CIA employee, who heard it from a colleague. In other words, it's all hearsay. But it's enough for Keith to kind of kickstart a broad-reaching investigative research. <clears throat> So, uh, over multiple episodes, tolling about, I don't know, like six hours, Keefe searches for proof and repeatedly turns up empty-handed. Um, or at least, he's unable to pin down refutable facts. Instead, he reveals basics of the CIA's work in the cultural sphere, such as how uh, American-African uh, musicians in the 60s and 70s, such as Nina Simone and Louis Armstrong among them, were used without their knowledge for foreign policy purposes in numerous African nations. Keefe also recalls another example of a psychological operation, or a PSYOP, which aimed to sway emotions and perspectives. In 79, Canadian and CIA operatives managed to smuggle American hostages out of Iran by disguising them as a film crew. The dramatic story was made into an Oscar-winning movie, Argo, in 2012. Even the movie's existence is no coincidence. According to the podcast, as the head of the CIA supposedly personally called for the release of a positive story about a successful CIA operation. Music journalist Carson Shoemaker is skeptical of Keene's willingness to uh, run with the rumor. I've had it up to here, he said, with conspiracy theories right now, he told DW, referring to the fake news surrounding the coronavirus. That's why journalists, especially now, should critically ask whether this makes sense. I don't have anything against rock mist, but this rumor just doesn't make any sense. Schumacher, a former editor-in-chief for the music magazine Visions, pointed out to the timing of the song's release as one of the numerous incongru incongruities behind the CIA as composer rumors. Winds of Change may have been written in 1989, but it wasn't published until November 1990, when it appeared on the album Crazy World. The single release came even later in February of 91. Everything had already happened by then. And if I, as the CIA, had wanted to have an influence, then I would have given the band the song in time for the Moscow Music Peace Festival in 1989, so the crowds could have you know, celebrated it and made it a big thing then. So and Schumacher doesn't find it suspicious that Winds of Change was mine's first ever composition. The Moscow Music Peace Festival must have been very special for everyone who was there, especially for a German band, that a musician would place himself in that moment and write a song about it. I don't find that absurd, or, or even on the contrary, that's the job of a pop musician. The song's lyrics, simplistic style, is also clearly original Scorpion material. Schumacher says that either there was a ghostwriter who could channel the band members really well, or that this is much more likely an original text. Another indication that the song could have come from the CIA, according to Keith's podcast, is that it was translated into Russian. 
What the reporter also doesn't mention is that there was a Spanish version also recorded. So uh, the podcast charm and what was what made it so successful is the way that research pulls the listener in. Keith is the podcast's actual protagonist. He lets the listener in on his questions and his doubts and makes him privy to unanswered phone calls, shady meetings, and exciting interviews with key figures in the song's history, such as Scorpion's music manager, Doc, Doc McGee. Is Doc McGee still alive? Because I know he, he, had, he had everybody. Didn't he have, like, Motley Crue and uh, a bunch of other ones, too? He was huge. Uh, Keith finally meets Klaus Mein just when the podcast tangles itself up in too many assumptions and questions. They talk about the era when the communist bloc was crumbling and about how a wind of change came about. Finally, Keith confronts Mine with the result of the research. Without spoiling anything, and if you want to go listen to us for yourself, please do, Mine responds with his own conclusion. Doesn't that show the power of music more than anything else? So there you have it. Ah, who knows? I don't know what to tell you. I, CIA has certainly been, been entwined with other music, like the, uh, uh, the early acid tests and things like that, and the early Grateful Dead shows when they were still the warlocks. So just because the Scorpions wrote it doesn't mean they weren't getting nudged by the CIA to write something of that fact, but who knows? But anyway, that's our show for today. Man, it's good to be back. I'm going to try and get more, at least a once a month schedule here. And uh, still going to try and get some guests, but I'm going to start covering some individual topics. More of some roundtable discussions, things like that. And uh, try and get some fun guests to come on here with me and talk about weird shit too. So it was great being back with you guys, and I hope to talk to you really soon in September. Thanks, guys, for still listening. And again, if you want to support the show, definitely subscribe, hit like, leave a comment, whether you're on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, you can message the show at, uh, at uh, what's the name of our show? Oh, yes, bizarroaficionado at gmail.com. Or you can join our Facebook group if you're on the Book of Faces. And we'd love to hear from you. So from myself and myself and the rest of the crew, myself, it was great talking to you guys. Do well, be safe, wear a goddamn mask, and I'll see you in a couple of weeks. Tell the ride the wave.